Well, hello everyone. I am here and you are not. And the reasoning is we have new restrictions that have been imposed upon us again related to the COVID virus. We are still navigating through these restrictions and what they mean. We want to abide by the spirit and intent of the law. We also want to be cautious with the well-being and the safety of those who would enter into our facility. So we're still in the process of discussing the best way that we can accomplish all of these objectives and resume our worship services as we would all prefer. So we encourage you to remain patient and prayerful as we approach reopening, hopefully in the next few weeks. We will keep you up to date on the decisions that are made as they are made and give you plenty of time to make the proper plans to attend worship with us. So in the meantime, we will do our very best to stay connected through our Zoom discussion groups. You've received an email instructing you of when those groups will meet. You'll receive another email that will give you the link that you can connect to so you can have a meaningful discussion with other people that are a part of Grace Fellowship Church. Well, today we're going to turn our attention back to the Gospel of John. We'll be in chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 21 through 30. And we've taken the last two weeks to look at the Lord's Supper, the events that were surrounding that event in the upper room as Jesus engaged with his disciples and showed them a model of humility that was a foreshadowing of the supreme model of humility when Jesus was going to go to the cross and die in place of sinful man. So as we continue through this narrative related to the Lord's Supper, we turn our attention now to the traitor. The traitor, of course, is Judas Iscariot, and we've already talked about him in some respect of the last two weeks, and we'll look at him and his life a little bit more detail today as we finish his contribution to this narrative. So as we think about what it means to be a traitor, a traitor has to be one of the greatest insults that can be said about an individual. A traitor may betray their country, their cause, or the trust of another individual. Most nations impose a death penalty on those who are convicted of treason. That is true in the United States of America. Although it isn't very often executed, it is in fact the penalty that is handed down to those that have been convicted of treason. In our own relationships, we will see some relationships die as a result of this great betrayal. One of the most famous traitors in American history is Benedict Arnold. During the Revolutionary War, Arnold offered to surrender the key fort at West Point to the British. He did this because he was frustrated at his being overlooked for a promotion, one that would have given him more money and funded his extravagant lifestyle, But after his treason was discovered, he deserted to the British and then fought against his own countrymen. He was known as the greatest traitor to the United States of America. Well, the Bible also records numerous traitors. Some of these would include Absalom, who revolted against his father David and tried to take from his father the throne of the nation of Israel. Jeroboam, whose rebellion against Solomon resulted in the division of Israel into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. Basha, 
murdered Jeroboam's son Nadab and reigned in his place. Zimri, who killed Basha's son Elah, reigned in his place. And there are many other individuals who would take the life of another in order to ascend to power. But the most notorious traitor in the Bible, and even in all of human history, is Judas Iscariot. Now there really isn't a lot known about Judas's life before he became a follower of Jesus, or before he was named an apostle. According to the Gospel of John in 671, 13 and 13:2 and 13:26, his father was Simon Iscariot. That surname, Iscariot, comes from two Hebrew means, meaning man of Kerioth. And so Judas was from the village of Kerioth, either the one in Moab, or more likely, the one in Judah, south of Hebron. Judas would have been the only one of the twelve disciples who was not a Galilean. Now the significance of this is that it could have made Judas's hypocrisy that much easier to continue since the other disciples would have known little about Judas's past or his background. The other disciples trusted Judas implicitly, and we see that in the fact that Judas was made the treasurer of this band of disciples. When Jesus announced in John 13, 21, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me, none of them even suspected that he was speaking of Judas. Even though Judas closely accompanied Jesus, he never gave to him his soul. He was only a physical follower. He was not a spiritual follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Since Judas was obviously attracted to Christ, was not attracted to Christ on a spiritual level, the question is then, why did he follow him? Well, Judas was not unlike the other disciples and most Jews of that day. They hoped that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans and restore Israel's political sovereignty. It is also likely that Judas was motivated by greed, the desire for power, and was smitten with worldly ambition. Now Judas, as one of the inner circle of Jesus' followers, he no doubt hoped for an important position in the restored kingdom, as did the other disciples. We looked at that very briefly in Matthew 20 and in Luke 22, where they were arguing amongst themselves about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Well, Judas was not interested in the kingdom that Jesus was going to inaugurate for salvation's sake, but for what he hoped he was going to get out of it, namely wealth and power and prestige. And so as time went on, And as Jesus' kingdom was not any closer to being initiated, it was likely that Judas became increasingly disillusioned with what he hoped he was going to be a part of. Jesus showed no signs of becoming the conquering political and military Messiah he hoped for. And in John 6, verses 14 and 15, Jesus rebuffed the people's attempt to make him king. And so as time went on, 
He stressed, Jesus stressed, the spiritual dimension of the kingdom, while Judas eagerly anticipated an earthly, political, and economic one. So if this is correct, if this was what Judas was really interested in, he hid his growing dissatisfaction behind this mask of hypocrisy that he wore. Just a few days before the Last Supper, however, an incident occurred that was the last straw for Judas. We looked at this in John chapter 12, when at a dinner in Bethany given in Jesus' honor, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who Jesus had just raised from the dead, Mary anointed Jesus with a large amount of very expensive perfume. This perfume was estimated to be valued at 300 denarii, and 300 denarii would be an annual salary for a common laborer. Now Judas was shocked and outraged, and he protested indignantly, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the people? Well, Judas, of course, cared nothing for the poor people that he had referenced. And as John comments in John 12, 6, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And, he had, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So a year's worth of wages deposited into the money box that Judas had control over was going to give to him a golden opportunity to help himself to perhaps money he had never seen before. But Judas's outward display of spiritual hypocrisy was so convincing that according to Matthew 28, verses 8 and 9, the rest of the disciples joined in his protest when Mary seemingly wasted this valuable bottle of perfume in anointing the feet of Jesus. Now, Matthew 26 records that immediately after Mary anointed the feet of Jesus and after there was this outrage about the seeming waste of the perfume, Judas went to the chief priest and he says in verses 15 and 16, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he, Judas, began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Well, this betrayal resulted in Judas telling the religious leaders where Jesus was going to be at night when he would be away from the crowds. Judas could no longer contain his bitterness and disillusionment and was later revealed as his secret treachery. But Judas's treachery, this betrayal, would not be hidden for long because Jesus was about to expose it. So the setting that this betrayal was going to be exposed is right here in the upper room at the occasion of the Lord's Supper and the washing of the feet of the disciples when Jesus was going to have his last and final meal with his disciples this night before his death. So as we've already seen, Jesus had taught them the importance of humble service through his example of washing their feet. And after this, he concluded the lesson by saying, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Immediately after this, Jesus turns the dialogue to the betrayer in verses 18 through 20 
And for context and connection, I want to read these three verses as we continue on in our exploration of this narrative. Verse 18 says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So at the conclusion of this lesson, Jesus is going to make this very distinct contrast between the eleven eternally blessed, loyal disciples with the eternally miserable traitor Judas. Obviously, Jesus is not going to send Judas out. No one is going to receive Judas as one who was sent by Jesus himself. And so as we continue in our narrative, beginning in verse 21 and going all the way through verse 30, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He then leaning back on Jesus' bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave, gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. We're going to look at these remaining verses in this narrative surrounding the foot washing and the Lord's Supper in three different points. And the first one is this, the treachery announced. Verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now that phrase, troubled in spirit, means severe emotional or spiritual turmoil. We've looked at this phrase before. It's the same word or phrase that is used to describe the emotions. For example, when the angel Gabriel visited Zacharias in the temple. It's also used to describe the disciples when they saw Jesus walking on the water. And when Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection. It was also expressed of Jesus, of the anguish of Jesus as at Lazarus' tomb when he saw the heartful sorrow of Mary and the artificial mourners who were accompanying her. It's also used when Jesus was facing the reality of the cross in John chapter 12. Here, Jesus is troubled over Judas's eternal fate. 
He is troubled over the fact that this one that he is love has rejected his love and at the hands of this one that he has loved, he was going to be betrayed. The imminence of the cross before him where he would take upon himself the sin of the world and experience momentary separation from the Father, Jesus is troubled in spirit. He's deeply troubled that one of his own was the betrayer. It is incomprehensible that after more than three years of living with the perfect Jesus, observing the miracles he had performed, and hearing his teaching, that one of Jesus' own would betray him. It wasn't a Pharisee. It wasn't someone that Jesus chose not to heal. It wasn't someone who disagreed with him over the point of doctrine. But it was one of his chosen disciples by which Jesus was going to be betrayed. Now the Bible doesn't record when Judas began to follow Jesus or when Jesus called Judas to follow him with the other eleven. But he was named an apostle by Jesus after the Lord has spent a night in prayer as recorded in Luke chapter 6. Judas was one of his own. The closer someone is to you, the more egregious the feeling and impact of that betrayal. When you are betrayed by a best friend, by a sibling, by a child, by a spouse, when one of these individuals betrays you, the emotional stress is so overwhelming that some wonder how they're ever going to carry on. Have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever been betrayed by someone that you loved and that you trusted. I can think of a number of times in my own life where I had people that were very close to me did the unthinkable and betrayed my trust or stirred up some kind of animosity against me that was completely false and uncalled for and the betrayal that I felt ran so deep that I didn't know what I was going to do. Well, sometimes this meant a loss of friendship Sometimes this meant a change of ministry, but here it means that Jesus is going to be betrayed by one of his own, and his betrayal was going to lead him to the cross. Now, number two in our outline, not only is the treachery announced, but the twelve are absolutely astounded at what they have just heard. They've already heard Jesus talk about the fact that he was going to be betrayed, but here it is very explicit that one of you is going to betray me. Verse 22, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Just as Jesus was troubled in spirit at all that was, at all that was involved in this act of betrayal, Now the disciples are sharing in the same kind of emotional distress with this news that one of them is going to betray him. But the question is, who? Who is going to be the one that is going to turn you over? Judas's hypocrisy was so thorough that absolutely no one suspected him. In fact, it's recorded in Mark 
chapter 14, verse 19, they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. Luke 22:23, And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. As they look around the room and began to consider who it might be, there is absolutely nobody that stands out as the likely culprit. That Judas had already agreed to betray him to the chief priests is on no one's radar. No one has an inkling of an idea that Judas is the one who is going to betray Jesus. Judas proved himself to be a liar and the epitome of a hypocrite since they were not able to discover for themselves that it was actually him. Now Matthew records in chapter 26 verse 25 that Judas who is betraying him also said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. So Judas played along, pretended like he knew nothing about his going to the chief priests and receiving 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. And yet Jesus was not fooled. Jesus knew exactly who it was that was going to betray him. But the disciples had absolutely no idea. So Peter seeks the answer. And the number two asks the question, do you know? Verse 23 There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now this is the first reference in the Gospel of John about the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it refers to John, the author of this Gospel. Jesus and John had a unique and a special relationship. When Jesus was on the cross, he looked down to John and asked him to look after his mother when he was gone. So John being one of the inner three had a special relationship with Jesus and it's possible that of the inner three there was some unique connection between Jesus and John that he did not share with the others. doesn't mean that Jesus loved them more or loved him differently. It just was something unique. So as Jesus is reclining at the table... John is reclining in the bosom of Jesus, and this is an indication of this unique and special friendship. Now we read in verse 24, So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. So Peter assumes that John knows. Perhaps this is another indication that John and Jesus had a special relationship with Jesus, or at the very least, that John would be able to find out from Jesus who it was that was going to betray him. Now, it appears that they aren't close enough around the table for Peter to actually speak these words out loud or to say them so that everyone could hear. And so Peter gestures. It's a nod of the head. It's a shrug of the shoulders, kind of like, hey, him over there. So he gets John's attention 
And John knows exactly what Peter is requesting of him. And this perhaps implies that Peter and John also had a unique and a special relationship as a part of the inner three. And Peter, excuse me, John knew what Peter wanted to know. And so John is going to answer this. And he simply says, I don't have any idea. John doesn't know. Nobody knows. Only Jesus knows who is the one that is going to betray him. So in verse 25, we see that John has no idea because he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? John doesn't know. He's asking for Jesus to disclose to him who it is. And so John is asking Jesus to reveal to him who is going to be guilty of this most despicable act. Jesus has announced this treachery. This treachery. The disciples are shocked by it. They don't know who it is. They have absolutely no idea. And that brings us to number three on our outline. The traitor is now addressed. Verse 26, Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So there's some important things here that are not so obvious to us because we are not so connected to the culture of this day and what this Lord's Supper might have actually looked like. So a couple things we need to point out. The proximity of John to Jesus is very important, as is the proximity of Judas to Jesus. In this type of meal that they were enjoying together, it was common for the eating spaces to be in the shape of a U, and at the head of that U there would be three spaces, one for the host or the guest of honor, the place of honor, and the other two spaces, one to the right and one to the left, to be also seen as places of honor, but not the place of honor. So the center place and the head of the U is occupied by Jesus. The places to the left and the right, which are considered places of honor, one was occupied by John because John had the ability to recline himself into the bosom of Jesus, which means that it is very probable that John is in one of two, one of the other two places of honor at the head of this U. The other thing that's important about this is that Judas is close enough for Jesus to be able to dip the morsel and give it to him personally, not pass it around the table or not say, here, give this to Judas, but Jesus himself personally gives to Judas this morsel, which means it is probable that Judas is occupying one of the other two places of honor at the head of the U. So the question is this, why Judas? He wasn't one of the inner three. He did not have a unique and special relationship like James and Peter and John were thought to have. It's possible that because Judas was the treasurer that it was common for him to sit close to Jesus. But many believe that this was intentional at the hands of Jesus because Jesus 
and giving to Judas this morsel is offering to him one last chance to change his mind about betraying him. Not so that Jesus could avoid the cross, because Jesus knew that was what he was sent to this world for, but so that his betrayal wouldn't come at the hands of one of his own. So Jesus gives to Judas the morsel. Now the morsel is given as an honor by the host. Now oftentimes this morsel was a piece of bread. Other times it was a choice piece of meat that was from the sacrifice that accompanied the Passover. And the host would give this morsel as an honor to a guest. But this time, this morsel signified who was the one that was going to betray Jesus, and it appears that only John heard what Jesus said. So here, Jesus the host dips the morsel into what is called the sop, The sop is a mixture of bitter herbs and salt and vinegar and water, crushed dates and raisins. It was common at the feast of the Passover, and unleavened bread was often dipped into it and eaten by the participants. And so as Jesus takes this morsel and dips it into this sop and gives it to Judas as a sign of honor, it is an indication to John that this is the one that is going to betray me. It's quite possible, and many commentators think, that Jesus gave him this morsel as a final appeal for Judas to reconsider his plans. But as we know from the narrative, as we know through the gospel accounts, Judas carried out this plan. His heart was so hardened by sin and rebellion and self-rule that he rejects the final gesture of love given to him by Jesus himself. So Judas's fate is sealed, his destiny is determined, and he gives himself over completely to this temptation of Satan. And we learn in verse 27 that when Judas takes the morsel, Satan enters. Verse 27, After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do... Do quickly. Now, this is important that we understand exactly what this means. Judas rejects Jesus' love and instead gives himself over to the invitation to be a willing participant in the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Jesus. When it says that Satan entered into him, it means exactly that. Judas is now possessed by Satan. He is absolutely and completely controlled and dominated by Satan. So all of the lost world is under Satan's influence and they have no real hope in winning any meaningful victory and the control and influence that Satan exerts over them. But that's not true for Christians. Christians are immune to being possessed by Satan although Christians can be influenced by Satan. Once we have been saved, we are joined to Christ, 
We are made to be one with Him. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we are incapable of being totally possessed by Satan. God cannot coexist with evil. If Satan is the epitome of evil, and we are the temple of God, a place for God's own dwelling, then Satan and God cannot exist in our spirit. So what this signifies is this. Judas was not a Christian. He was never a Christian. He has given himself over to the absolute and total control of Satan. And his destiny has been sealed. John says that Satan entered into him, meaning possession, possession, confirming that Judas was not a true believer. He was simply an imposter. He was under the influence of Satan. And he was now completely under his control. He was going to carry out this treacherous plan. And there was not anything that was going to stop him. Judas had now reached a point of no return, and therefore Jesus says to him, what you do, do quickly. Jesus has dispatched Judas to finish this wicked plan inspired by Satan and now carried out by a willing pawn of this plan. Before the disciples, confusion remains. They still don't understand what is going on. Only John has heard Jesus say that the one that I give this morsel to, he is the one that is going to betray me. So confusion remains. We read in verses 28 and 29. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for of of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So the disciples who have seen Jesus give to Judas a morsel, and then seen Judas quickly leave the room, they assume that Jesus has sent him out to buy some supplies or to give something to the poor. All of this would have been common at the Passover meal. So they don't understand what is going on, and Jesus tells Judas to leave, and he leaves immediately. So where does Judas go when he leaves the upper room? After experiencing the foot washing and this final meal with Jesus and this morsel of honor, where does he go? Well, he goes to the chief priests. He's telling them where Jesus is going to be, and in just a few short hours, they're going to show up on the Mount of Olives at the Garden of Gethsemane, as was Jesus' custom to go at night to pray. Judas's deceit and hypocrisy, even after Jesus' statement that one of them would, would betray him, when Judas got up and left the room, still nobody suspected him. And so Judas departs. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. So there's no choice of words here that are to indicate that there's some kind of a coincidence in what John is using to describe this scene for us. 
in this upper room, you have the light of the world. You have the one and only Son of God who has come into the world. He has loved these disciples completely to the end. And after this final act of love has been rejected, Judas departs and John says, it is night. Night is a stark contrast to Jesus being the light of the world. Jesus came as a light of the world to illuminate it with his glory. And the next time we hear about Judas, he's leading the pack of religious leaders coming to arrest Jesus. After this is carried out and Jesus is on trial and Jesus is executed, we read in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5, And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he, Judas, threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. Some wrongly conclude that this is an act of repentance by Judas, but the words that are used in the Word of God are specific, and they're specific for a purpose. The word remorse that is used here in Matthew means emotional regret or sorrow. Matthew does not use the word for repentance, which would indicate a spiritual sorrow. So Judas is aware of his treachery, There's some kind of an emotional distress that creates for him. It's short of repentance, but he is filled with such sorrow that the only thing that he can conclude he needs to do is to go and take his own life. And commenting on this account in the book of Matthew, John MacArthur says this, Only 11 other men in all of history have had the intimate personal relationship Judas had with the the incarnate Son of God. No man has ever been more exposed to God's perfect truth, both in precept and example. No man has been more exposed firsthand to God's love, compassion, power, kindness, forgiveness, and grace. No man has had more evidence of Jesus' divinity or more first-hand knowledge of the way of salvation. Yet in all of those three indescribably blessed years with Jesus, with Jesus, Judas did not take so much as the first step of faith. Judas was not a Christian. He did not repent. He was simply filled with an emotional sorrow He is known as the son of perdition. These are the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 17. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you gave me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus was under no illusion that Judas was a sincere follower. Jesus knew exactly who he was. And so Jesus tells us, that he is known as the son of destruction, confirming that Judas himself was not a true and sincere believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
John tells us that Satan entered into him, and the New Testament affirms that he is a betrayer and a traitor and not a true follower. Well, as we think about this tragic story of Judas, and as we look back at our own lives prior to Christ, understanding the depth of our sin, the completeness of our depravity, and understanding that Jesus in his love, his mercy, and his grace has chosen us, has allowed us to know exactly who he is, has given us a heart of faith to be able to respond to this truth, and has sealed for us an eternal destiny in heaven with him, what kind of a response should you and I have to this amazing and incredible truth that we so enjoy? Well, it's one that should be filled as a life of love and devotion, of gratitude and humility, of willingness to do whatever it is that Jesus calls us to do, simply because we are thankful for what he has done for us. I believe that this is also a stern warning to those who would occupy the seats of a church, knowing that they have never given their lives to Christ and are willing to play a fool's game, being content to wear a mask, to live out a charade in front of other men, knowing in their heart of hearts that God knows exactly who they are and yet they're content to live a life of hypocrisy. It's a solemn and a stern warning. And I believe that Jesus would say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we are so thankful for the gift of salvation that we know and enjoy. We pray that you would teach us to treasure this more and more with each passing day. We pray that you would also teach us to hate our sin as you hate our sin, as we recognize that it is our sin that sent you to the cross that we would be willing to repent and turn away from these worldly temporal things that we've learned to love and be content with, that we would be dissatisfied in our spirits, that there would be a lack of peace knowing that things aren't exactly the way they should be in our walk with you. We pray, Father, that your spirit would convict and lead us into all truth and you would find in us a compliant and willing heart to follow you as the light of the world. We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.